0: this is geek punk
1: a google media production
2: And welcome to Planetary Union Network, the Orville Fan Podcast. This is Dan Taylor. If you've heard the show before, you've heard me uh, come on with that. Uh, welcome plenty of times. And with me is Joe Quickle. How you doing, Joe?
1: Hey, Dan. How's it going?
2: Oh, swell. And our uh, other co-host, Michael May.
1: Hey, how are you?
2: Good, good. And our guest this time around is Andre Bormanis. Perfect. Um he is the science consultant on The Orville, as well as a co-writer with the uh, episode Into the Fold. Um, yep. How you doing, Andre?
3: I'm doing great. How are you guys doing?
2: Good. I want to thank you for joining us. Um, now, before we get started, had I known I could have ended up hanging out on a sci-fi show like Star Trek or The Orville, I would have paid a more attention to Mrs. Statham's science class my freshman year. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Seriously, how real, well, not real quick, take as long as you want, but how does one turn studying science into um, I don't know, pretty much a dream job playing in the sandbox like Star Trek or The Orville?
3: Well, it's, uh, you know, it was kind of an amazing journey. I uh, studied physics and astronomy in college and did some work in grad school in those fields and then got involved in NASA and policy work for NASA. But I always had a, um, a strong interest in science fiction and writing and literature and television. I was a huge fan of the original Star Trek uh, growing up as a kid um, and um, never expected that there would be any more Star Trek on TV after the original series was canceled way back when. And um, well after I had graduated college, Star Trek The Next Generation came on television. It's like, holy cow, it's a new Star Trek series. How cool is that? Started watching. And, you know, the first couple of years were a little shaky on Star Trek The Next Generation. And I heard that they had an open submission policy for scripts. And I thought, you know, I've got some interesting ideas for stories. And, you know, maybe I could pitch something to them. I wrote a spec script. I submitted it. Uh, it got rejected, but I got a very nice rejection letter from a guy named Maurice Hurley, who was a producer on the show. And it was like, you know, nice, but not, not what we're looking for, but feel free to try again. And, um, long story short, you know, I'd written a couple of spec script, I scripts, I'd taken some screenwriting classes and I managed to find an agent in Los Angeles who was interested in representing me. And uh, she was trying to set up a meeting for me to pitch stories to Star Trek The Next Generation. This is when it was in its sixth uh, season.
2: Time was running out.
3: out, Yeah. She found (laughs) out that they were looking for a new science consultant. And I'm like, what's that? I had no idea that they had anything like that. And she said, oh, they got this guy who was a physicist who had been helping them with the uh, language and the dialogue, the science language and science ideas and stories and she said they wanted somebody who was both a scientist and who had a background in, in uh, writing scripts and who knew the show. And I knew Star Trek Inside Out, and I you know, tried my hand at writing a couple of scripts, so had some idea of how that process worked. And she said, uh, you know, let, let me call them and see if uh, they might be interested. So I get a call saying, oh, Jerry Taylor would love to meet you. Jerry was a supervising producer, I think, on Star Trek The Next Generation at the time. She and I talked on the phone for about an hour and hit it off. And she invited me to come out and meet with the staff. And I met Brandon Braga and Ron Moore and Michael Piller and Iris Stephen Bear and Renee Echeverria and Ken Biller, you know, all of those guys. And, um, and Michael Piller gave me a little audition. He, uh, gave me a script he was working on for deep space nine, which I think was in its second season at the time and asked me to write up some tech notes. And the guy who, um, had been doing that stuff, Narain Shankar, who'd been bumped up to the writing staff, uh, showed me how he did his notes. So I took the script, and I ran to the library, and I read the script, and I went and, you know, did some research and wrote up nine pages of notes. And the next morning, I faxed them over to the office. And a couple of weeks later, they said, uh, hey, if you want the job, you're hired. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I was uh, finishing grad school at the time under a NASA fellowship in Washington, D.C., and they literally needed me to start the week that I finished my uh, master's degree there. And so in, uh, in May of 1993, I, uh, I drove from Washington, D.C. to L.A. to be the, uh, the science consultant for Star Trek. And I knew that that would give me the opportunity to go in and pitch stories uh, for those guys. And I got to pitch to Jerry Taylor. And, and you know, it, it took me a few times, but after I pitched about 15 different stories. <laughs> they finally bought one and then they bought another and slowly but surely they asked me to write a script and that worked out pretty well. And after a few years of doing that, they invited me to be on the uh, writing staff on star Trek enterprise. And I've been doing TV writing ever since.
2: Right. There are so many science geeks out there right now, changing their plans
3: <laughs> yeah, <I hope> <laughs> for up, their
2: future. Know.
3: Why not? I, I have a lot of friends who are scientists who, uh, Also science fiction geeks when they were grown up and still who have consulted on movies and TV shows. And um, Kevin Grazier, who's a Ph.D. planetary scientist who's worked at JPL for many years. And Seth Shostak, who is the uh, uh, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. You know, these guys have all worked on various shows. And, um, you know, I, I love the intersection of science and art. I think it's so important to inspire not just kids, but, you know, adults, anybody who has any interest in the sciences to really, you know, think about what would it take to build something like a starship, you know, like the Enterprise or the Orville. And we, we, we talk about that kind of stuff. And Gene Roddenberry was very insistent from the beginning of the original Star Trek over 50 years ago that he had to come up with a very credible-looking ship. And there had to be certain, you know certain requirements for how this thing would work. It's gonna have a crew of a few hundred people. It's gonna to have to, you know, it's gonna be traveling on a multi-year mission. And it's clear that, you know, chemical rockets are not gonna send this thing from here to Alpha Centauri, let alone, you know, halfway across the galaxy and so on. So he sat down with real scientists and engineers and people from JPL and the Rand Corporation and talked through, you know, what would we need to develop to make this a reality? And I think that's one of the reasons the show has been so successful is that it's grounded in a certain kind of reality. It's speculative, but, you know, for the most part, it really does not violate any basic laws of physics or chemistry or, you know, anything that we know about astronomy and space science. We integrate that stuff into the stories, and I think that the audience recognizes that. And so they can suspend their disbelief, you know, uh, that the idea that, oh, yeah, someday we'll build a starship and we'll travel among the stars. For an hour, I can believe that that's real because of the way we portray it on on Star Trek and now the Orville. And so, you know, Seth MacFarlane, very, very much a huge Star Trek fan, and he had the same attitude as Gene Roddenberry did 50 years ago. we got to make this credible. we got to think about this ship, how it works. What have we learned since the original Star Trek about warp drive and, you know, uh, environmental control systems and all of the other different elements of this thing that have to be, you know, that would have to be created in order to make this ship viable. And so, you know, me and a number of other people, production designers and various other people involved in the show, you know, really hammered a lot of this stuff out to make sure that uh, you know, that while the audience is watching the show, they can believe that someday this sort of a thing could really happen.
2: All right, let me ask you this. Since you opened up this can of worms,
3: mm-hmm.
2: what's the fundamental difference between, say, the quantum drive on the Orville and warp drive on Star Trek?
3: Well, the warp drive on Star Trek was... Pretty much the idea was that somehow we would learn to corral the energy that we could create in a matter-antimatter reaction to affect the curvature of space-time. And they didn't really think in terms of the details of what that might involve, I mean, in Next Generation, um, they talked about the warp nacelles and some exotic material called reterium cortinide that you could, you could send a high-energy plasma through and it would, you know, th- this, this material had the property that that would create the space warp effect. But in more recent years, you know, what, we've, what, what, what people are thinking about is that quantum mechanics is probably more fundamental than Einstein's general theory of relativity general relativity is the theory that describes how gravity works how space-time can be warped by the presence of matter and energy so space-time tells matter and energy how to move and matter and energy tell space-time how to curve but where does space-time come from ultimately well there are a lot of scientists these, these days who are thinking that it arises from quantum processes that quantum entanglement might actually um, lead to space-time as what we call an emergent property, uh, a property of the interactions of quantum-level processes and particles that sort of transcend, uh, you know, the individual parts that, that that are involved in these processes so that the sum is greater than the whole. So entanglement of quantum particles might lead to space-time. And that's the idea that we hit on that said, okay, what is going to distinguish this, you know, starship from, you know, other examples that we've seen on Star Trek and other shows. And this notion that if you understand space at the quantum level, if we understand how space arises from quantum mechanical processes, that may someday lead to the possibility of faster than light travel. And because quantum mechanics is so central to that idea, we decided, or I should say Seth decided, let's call this thing a quantum drive. And then we were working in the writer's room, and I'm, I'm trying to remember which episode this came up in. I think it probably came up in episode five. I know we used the idea in episode eight, the one that Brandon and I wrote that was on last week, that uh, there is a, um, a um, transuranic element uh, that we called Dysonium in honor of Freeman Dyson, who's a brilliant physicist who you know has, has been a pioneer in uh, quantum mechanics and other fields for gosh, 60-plus years. The guy's still alive. He's in his 90s, and he's still doing great work. So we thought we should honor Freeman by doing, uh, naming this uh, hypothetical transuranic element disonium. And my idea about disonium is, in physics, when I was in college, you know, there was this notion that there might be stable transuranic elements with really high atomic numbers. Like, once you, once you get beyond uranium, you know, to some of these weird you know, curium and einsteinium and all these other, like, really huge atoms, you know, the ones that have, like, you know, 100, 110, 115 protons in their nuclei, they're really unstable. You know, it's hard to crowd that many protons together in a small space and keep it stable. There are reasons to believe that maybe when you get up to element 125, 130, something like that, they might actually be stable. Now, we haven't discovered those yet. But I thought thought to myself, well, why would those those things be stable? Maybe there is some kind of exotic matter within the nucleus of those elements that make them stable through sort of an anti-gravity force. And that was sort of my pitch to Seth about how the quantum drive might work, that we've learned, we've discovered and learned how to manipulate uh, this material called disonium and use it to our advantage to, uh, you know, generate this... uh, faster-than-light drive, and Seth said, well, oh, sure. <laughs> you know, so, okay, there we go. And I, a friend of mine, Sean Carroll, is a theoretical physicist at uh, Caltech, and, and I told him this idea, and he looked at me very skeptically, and he said, well, <laughs> I don't know about that, but just make sure you conserve quantum numbers. And I said, okay, we'll conserve quantum numbers. So uh, that's kind of the, you know, the science fictional, but, again, grounded in some real science idea behind the quantum drive.
2: Does it come in crystal form, like dilithium?
3: You bet it does. Okay. You see that, you see a little bit of that in episode eight. Has to be refined, you know, but it's something that you can find in an ore and refine and uh and use as a uh, as a source of power and a, and as a way to uh distort space-time.
2: Let me ask you about episode eight into the Fold, that you co wrote yes. with Brandon. Yes. Were you at odds as a r as the writer? Were you at odds with that? pretentious science guy that keeps telling you it can't happen that way?
3: You know, a little bit. I mean, it's certainly, it's always in the back of my mind. And it's because, you know, I, I, you know, I have some understanding of this stuff, but I'm, I'm always impressed by the fact that nature is so much smarter than we are. You know, when I was in college, when I was in graduate school, when I was out of college, uh, for years, we didn't know that planets existed around other stars. We assumed they did. wasn't until 1995 that we discovered the first planets orbiting other stars. And those planets were orbiting something called a neutron star. Nobody expected planets to be orbiting a neutron star, and yet there it is. And then a few years later, uh, Jeff Marcy and Paul Butler and other people started discovering planets orbiting some like stars. Uh, extraordinary. We knew that this was almost certain to be true, but it took centuries for that speculation to become reality. And then we began to understand that, you know what, planets like Jupiter, uh, Jupiter has three moons that are frozen on their surfaces, but have subsurface oceans. Nobody ever would have thought 10 years ago, 15 years ago, well, maybe 20 years ago, that Jupiter was, in effect, in the habitable zone, because its moons have a structure and an interaction gravitationally with Jupiter and the other moons that kind of squeezes them like a tennis ball and generates internal heat that could make a subsurface ocean of water. There's liquid water inside Europa and Ganymede and probably Callisto. It's a habitable zone. So when Brandon and I were talking about Into the Fold and um, where is this planet that uh, Claire and Isaac and Claire's kids are going to crash, I said, hey, you know, what would be cool make it a habitable moon around a Jupiter-like planet. And sure, that's great. Now, if you'd done that on Star Trek 50 years ago, people would have said that's crazy. Today we know that that's not crazy at all, that that's actually fairly likely. And and we know that there are Jupiter-scale planets that are orbiting close enough to their stars that you could have liquid water on the surface of one of these moons, not just in the interior. So I think that with respect to... The setting, um, the, the, the idea of that, that there was biological warfare on this planet, that there was a pathogen that was in the water, all of these different elements, pretty credible, you know. And, and the one thing that we invented, you know, that is fictional is disonium, you know, this transuranic element that can be a good power source and can also, you know, help you manipulate space time. Yeah, that's invented. But other than that, I think we were pretty well grounded in that episode.
2: Oh, I. I, I- you, buy yeah, it. you bought. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, I bought it. I wasn't check. I wasn't checking anything. Uh, I enjoyed the episode greatly. Well, thank you. Let's talk uh, again about let's talk about the quantum drive. Now there's f- what three what are they, are they fins?
3: Three rings. Yeah, three, three rings. rings. Yes. Uh-huh.
2: So if one gets knocked out, does 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 it require all three to work at full
3: No, you can, in principle, you can get by with one ring, but you will not go nearly as fast and you will not have the same range that you have with all three rings. So yeah, there is a certain redundancy with the rings, um, but there is also a great increase in range and, um, and in speed. It's a little, you know, it's a little analogous to, you know, having an engine with three pistons, you know, um. Yeah, you can maybe get the, get the thing to work with one piston, but it's not going to work very well. And you're going to have a hard time keeping it going, and you're not going to get very far very fast. So ideally, you have all three rings working simultaneously to get where you want to go.
0: I love how they boot up one at a time. Is there any science to that, or is that just because it looks cool?
2: I, it's,
3: you know, that's pretty much because it looks cool. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Fair enough.
2: Now, I remember when Next Generation came out, Because I I grew up a huge Star Trek fan, and I had a relative that worked on the Paramount lot. And I think before the first episode actually aired, Mm -hmm. we got on their set of Next Generation. You know, I saw the bridge and the court, some of the corridors, and Uh uh, I think a holodeck. Right. And I got my hands on the Next Generation Bible. Ah which I still have to this day. I mean, it was great, but of course it had all the technical stuff for all the writers Dad, you guys are, you guys have to have one of these in existence, right?
3: You know, we do. It's uh, it's not something that we, you know, there is was a w- book like a wiki. A, yeah. Well, not really. No, you know, there's a, there is a book coming out in January, the art of the Orville. And we get into some of the details that were involved in the production and the development of the ship. And, Stephen Lineweaver who's our amazing production designer and Brian Rogers who's our prop guy who's awesome and uh, Taylor Falkenberry who is uh, somebody who has helped design a lot of the graphics and alien languages and stuff she's sort of our futurist you know she imagines all of these alien cultures and and um, you know and how we might how we might represent them visually um, you know we've all contributed to the the sort of the look and feel of of the ship and and some of the sort of the basic technical aspects of it and i'm not sure that we've ever collectively and seth may have a a sort of a, a bible that he references but you know seth i gotta tell you um i always knew seth was a really funny guy obviously and he's a huge star trek fan we had him on enterprise i was a writer on star trek enterprise and he, he came over and he just kind of like, I just so want to have, just, just cameo, give me a cameo. Give me a cameo. <laughs> and he's, you know, longtime friends with David Goodman who worked on Family Guy. Uh, the original few seasons of Family Guy and then Family Guy got canceled for a couple of years. And David Goodman came and worked for us because a huge Star Trek fan. He wrote that great Futurama Star Trek episode with the heads of the original series, you know, cast and stuff. And, and a really good writer, a great one-hour drama writer. We wanted to bring some humor into the show. So we got to know David, and, of course, David knew Seth. And through David, we, we got Seth, you know, I, I think he was in a couple of episodes of Enterprise as a guy in engineering who had, like, one line, you know. And we begged him to at least do one take as Stewie, but he refused to do it because <laughs> he took it really seriously, you know. and um, And so... Yeah, I knew he was this funny guy. He, did, you know, he was a great mimic and, you know, a good singer and a funny comic writer. I didn't know what a good science fiction writer he was. When we started the writing room on the Orville, uh, he'd already written like three scripts, I think, for the show. And I'm reading these like, that. this is like really good science fiction. Oh, my God, he's a really good one-hour drama writer. And yeah, it's funny, but, you know, there are cool science fiction ideas in this. Seth wrote about half of the episodes in the first season. So before me and you know, and the other writers got started on this show, Seth already had a very clear vision on what the show was going to be and what the show was about. The basic idea, the basic premise of the, the the planetary union universe, and and so that stuff is in Seth's head. And when we come up with ideas of things like you know, Dysonium, you know, and the com scanner, and this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. That stuff resides in Seth's head. And, you know, he's got an extraordinary memory. And uh, not a lot of stuff needs to be written down for Seth. So if there is a document, it's probably an assemblage of memos somewhere. Uh, and, then, and then the material that you'll see presented in this book that comes out at the end of the year or early next year.
2: Yeah, we're excited to get our hands on that. Uh, I've already contacted the publisher saying, cool. let's, yeah, let's get down to that. And we've had... Like we had Brandon on the show last week, and we had David on a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So much like Seth, we are plotting our way onto the show as well. We have made uh, David promise that we'd get in somehow. Brandon <laughs> said it was okay. Sure, um, yeah. When Jonathan Frakes comes back next season, directly, we're in. So exactly, giving you a heads up there.
3: <laughs> oh, no, that'll be great. You'll
2: love it. Um, you guys got any questions?
1: I'll uh, well, grab one from the uh, from the Reddit pool. So, um, so, software mills on Reddit said uh, or asked, What's your relationship to completely unrealistic sci fi tropes like dense asteroid belts or gravity wells that suddenly start sucking the crew in or densely packed nebulas with dangerous electrical storms?
3: Yeah, you know, clearly there's some dramatic license involved and in all of the things he mentions um dense asteroid belts is probably my least favorite thing to see in a science fiction series Uh, our asteroid belt you know we we've we've sent you know probably eight ten spacecraft or something through the the asteroid belt uh you know the pioneer 10 and 11 voyager 1 and 2 cassini juno new horizons i've lost count here a little bit um It's empty space, (laughs) you know, hello. Most of space is empty. You shoot randomly through the asteroid belt, any spacecraft in any direction, it's like getting hit by lightning. It's less likely than getting hit by lightning. It's just not gonna happen. There are, however, dust bands, you know, that surround certain stars that are more dense and depending on how fast you're traveling could be a real problem, you know. If you're going through a region of space, that is better than the best vacuum we can pull here on earth. And that region of space has maybe, you know, a hundred dust grains per cubic meter. Um, and you travel through that at a speed of, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 kilometers per hour, you're going to be in, you're going to be in deep shit. You know, that's a problem. But the actual big chunky asteroids are few and far between in any planetary system we can imagine. Gravity wells, you know, it's a little bit different. I think, you know, a gravity, well, uh, because, because gravity works on this so-called inverse square law, uh, the closer you get to a big mass like the sun, the more rapidly the gravitational force increases. And so I think it's, it's fair to say that if you get too close to a, a, a large mass in space, especially a concentrated mass like a black hole, that uh, you can quickly find yourself at a point of no return, uh, without necessarily uh, knowing it. So I think that, that that is potentially a real hazard. Again, these things are so few and far between, your chances of hitting upon something like that randomly, really, really small. Uh, there are shock waves in space. It, it sounds counterintuitive since space is mostly a vacuum, but you can see evidence of shock waves in the interstellar medium, uh, evolved supernova remnants like the uh, Veil Nebula and Cygnus is an example of such a thing. Uh, Again, it's not like a shockwave here on the Earth. It's not like somebody tosses a grenade and the guy 20, you know, 30 feet away, uh, you know, gets blown off his feet because of the shockwave through the air. Uh, It doesn't work like that. And so when starships are buffeted by shockwaves from explosions in space, yeah, I don't really care how dense the nebula is that you're in. (laughs) It's it's, uh, it's not likely to cause too much of a shakeup in your... uh, in your starship. But, you know, I think that uh I can forgive a little dramatic license. Uh Star Trek True, The Wrath of Khan, such a great movie, The Mutara Nebula, the Little Boats of Lightning and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a little bit stylized. Uh it's probably um, you know, when you're in something like that, it's it's not nearly as 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 dense as what was portrayed in that movie or in what we might do on a show like Orville. But I'm willing to cut some slack to that because it's so visually stunning. And, and yeah, these, these things are real in space. It's just like when you're really in something like that, it probably looks different than when you're looking at it from a thousand light years away. But, yeah, that, that, that doesn't bother me too much.
1: Another question from Reddit uh, asks, What does the crew do to combat elements like muscular atrophy? Or with the Lara with her, higher, her world being higher right. gravity, how does, how does she handle that?
3: That's a really good question. You know, the human crew on the ship and the crew that, you know, whatever aliens come from Earth-like gravity environments, uh, it's not an issue because we have artificial gravity. So if we had artificial gravity on the space station, you know, if we had a spin, for example, like, you know, the wheels, the wheels type space station in 2001 or, you know, the, uh, you know, the thing that uh, uh, Gary Lockwood was running around in the, in the, in the, in the discovery ship in 2001 Muscle atrophy is not a problem if you have artificial gravity. Alara, on the other hand, comes from a world with a much higher surface gravity than the Earth. And for her, being on the Orville is, is like being in a microgravity environment. And one of the things that I once suggested in, uh, you know, when we were talking about stories one day was that we should establish at some point that in her quarters, Alara has the gravity, the artificial gravity turned up much higher. And this is part of the reason she has trouble dating guys, (laughs) because it's (laughs) like if she invites them over to her cabin, they're going to be crawling across the floor to get to the bed. I think that she has to have a really high-gravity environment, uh, especially crafted for her cabin. Otherwise, she would be suffering from muscle atrophy and osteoporosis and all these other things, that, like Mark Kelly and guys who spend long periods of time up on the space station experience
2: we've heard it meant we've heard seth mentioned before and and I uh, and uh the other writers such as david and brandon the decision not to use transporters or teleporters yeah. and mostly for dramatic reasons and i i for one love it i think mm-hmm. i think technology has ruined good drama because you know everyone's on the internet or cell phones nowadays and you don't have that suspense that you have when we had to use landlines for everything
3: mm-hmm. or right
2: um how 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 do you feel about the fact that that you know there's no transporters and uh or do you relish the fact that you get to f- these other challenges by not having that handy for oh, the yeah.
3: crew to use No 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 I I'm I'm relieved we didn't do a transporter. I think that would have been a huge mistake and I think Seth recognized that that was something really unique to Star Trek and you know teleportation is something that you know obviously existed existed in science fiction before Star Trek Um, and the reason that he, uh, you know, that he decided he needed a teleportation device on the enterprise was that, you know, they didn't have the money or the time to land a, you know, a starship with a crew of 400 people every week on some new planet, you know, or dock with a giant space station or whatever. It was just a convenient storytelling device. You got to get your characters down into the action as quickly as possible. And the transporter as a storytelling device was a perfect solution to that we have a little bit more of the luxury of time and we, we can accommodate in our budget shuttlecraft that can uh, you know, fly out of the shuttle bay and land on the surface of the planet or go to another ship or dock with a space station or whatever. And, and, and we, we can do those special effects. Uh, we have the, uh, you know, the shuttlecraft mock-ups and it takes a few seconds. You know, It's not an expensive thing to do. Um, that was not really an option. When Gene at least started the original Star Trek you know obviously they introduced a shuttlecraft you know and in, in the first season but um you know as a as a technology as something that could someday exist teleportation that's that's pretty far out there that's that's kind of beyond the horizon of anything we can imagine realistically i i can imagine warp drive because we understand enough about general relativity and there was this mexican astrophysicist uh, Miguel Alcubier, who came up with a, a, um, a solution to the equations of general, general relativity that said you could, you know, stretch space faster than the speed of light and compress it faster than the speed of light, make a little sort of a subspace bubble and travel from one place to another effectively faster than the speed of light without violating relativity. Great. That's really cool, you know, and that's, you know, part of the premise of, you know, what we do. Transporters, teleportation, you know, even with these ideas like quantum entanglement and stuff like that, you know, it just doesn't work that way. And, and on Star Trek, the idea was, you know, you disassemble somebody atom <laughs> by atom, turn them into a stream of matter and energy, and then, you know, focus that on some place where you want them to be and reassemble it. It's like, no fucking way. You know, they, you just can't do that. It's not going to work. And it's going to be horrible if you, <laughs> if you try to do it. You're literally tearing somebody apart and then putting them back together. So it's like it's a suicide machine um and it resurrects you you know at the other end if you're lucky and so that can of worms you know has been picked apart so thoroughly it's like i'm just very glad that we never never went down that route we did do a little molecular transfer in episode two as you probably remember the zoo episode um and uh but that you know was an alien technology far beyond ours and we never really got into the details of it so uh that might have been more of like a you know a wormhole type thing, uh, as far as anybody knows.
2: Yeah, no, aliens can do whatever they want. We're not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But um, for any
3: foreseeable technology, I just don't see that happening.
2: Now, if I remember correctly, it took a while. I don't want to be one of those guys that compares everything with Orville to Star Trek, but obviously the similarities are there. Mm-hmm. And so I'm asking you, as being associated with both shows, mm-hmm. obviously. It took a while for the Federation or Starfleet, um, to get a handle on say cloaking devices. Yes. Um, and it seemed it so far in season one that the, the, um, hologram or cloaking type devices that they got early on. has already been put to use. Yes. Um, do do, do you see some danger perhaps in having something like that available already to the crew?
3: Yeah. You know, there's a little bit of danger in the sense that, you know, if we get ourselves into a situation where, you know, a crew member is in some trouble and we, we want, want wanted to um, be an important part of the story. uh, We don't want to get into a situation where we think, Oh, wait a minute. Why didn't the guy bring a cloaking device and just cloak himself out of the trouble? You know, uh, we don't want to do that, obviously. We don't want it to be too easy or something that we use, uh, you know, on a routine basis. And I think that, you know, in most of the situations that our crew finds themselves in, the dramatic situations, they're interacting with other people and other cultures. And so the idea of a cloaking device, well, you know, in episode six, the Krill episode, um, Ed and Gordon, you know, were able to make themselves look like Krill uh, while they were on that Krill ship. And then they had a malfunction, you know, but they were able to kind of cover that and so forth. Um, but we never want to get into a place where it's just easy to hide and get out of the danger. And, and we, we, we've been careful not to, you know, not to portray this technology as something that would allow you to do that. You know, there are limitations on it doesn't necessarily allow you to make yourself just invisible. And even if it did, even if you're invisible, somebody can bump into you and know that you're there, right? Right. So you got to be careful about some of these technologies to make sure that they're not eliminating the potential for drama in, in your story. But I think that, you know, the fun of it is that, you know, you can set it up in such a way that it's like, oh, ah, he can hide. He's got a cloaking device. But then, oh, it malfunctions or, oh, somebody bumps into him, you know. It's not a perfect solution, right? No technology is ever a perfect solution to any problem. So, uh, so yeah, we, we 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 have that technology, and we will use it, but it's not something that uh, uh, will necessarily be able to save us in like any potential jeopardy situation.
2: All right, I'm not. These questions are coming from everywhere here. Sure. Concerning the the awesome looking sidearms that they use. Yes. Um, is there an official title for, or name for those? I mean, they're called phasers yeah. in Star Trek. What do we call them? In-
3: I think that the, uh, the, the sidearms they typically carry, I think are called a P-44. Brian Rogers, who you should talk to, who's our prop master and designer, he's great. He, um, he named it, he, he designed it, he created it. It's a plasma pulse pistol type of thing. It, it basically, in, in effect, it fires... Um, you know, kind of like concentrated um, plasma pulse. pulses. Yeah, they're. Pla- <laughs> hey, <laughs> here's a, here's a term. Yeah, it fires it fires your plasma pulses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's like a little concentrated um, ball of energy. You know, like ball lightning almost might be a, a good way to describe it. And um, Brian came up with the design. It looks really cool. Uh, The notion is that it has different settings. There is a, you know, the magazine or the equivalent of the magazine is power pack that, you know, if you're on the stun setting, which is a lower energy setting, you maybe have 100 shots on on the plasma pistol. If you're on the highest setting, you know, the kill setting or whatever the highest energy level is, you maybe only have, you know, eight or 10 shots. So it's a function of, you know, how much energy is in the is in the pulse. Uh, that determines um, how many shots you can fire. So we, we have thought through that stuff. And uh, Brian could tell you the details of like the P-44, and I think there's a different version. There's one that kind of like can snap into a rifle, sort of a configuration. I'm not sure if we've seen that yet this season, but maybe, maybe we may see it in a few. I, I, I just can't remember now if that comes up in an episode. But yeah, Brian worked out all of that stuff, and it's really cool.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's what... We fans love is that sort of stuff. And of course yeah, we're exactly. all working on our cosplay outfits and we need yeah. to know exactly how to put those all together.
3: They look great. And you know, the krill weapons have a different design sensibility that is, you know, that is consistent with the krill culture and the, the look of the ships, you know, more angular, a little more aggressive looking. And yeah, yeah, Brian did a great job on all of that stuff. It's really, really cool.
0: Um, I like this one question that a Reddit user asked. Um if there was a, uh, what was your most difficult negotiation you ever had, uh, where you tried to stand your ground on how science should be portrayed on TV?
3: Oh wow! Um, you know there were some times way back when on Star Trek, I remember there was an episode I worked on as the science consultant in the final season of Star Trek: The Next Generation, where there was a story that had a subplot that involved Captain Picard getting into some kind of high-tech kayak and riding a, a magma flow all the way to the center of a Class M planet. And it was like, <laughs> journey to the center of the Earth in a kayak. <laughs> a space and kayak. And so I, I wrote up my little note, and I said, you know, I like this story. This is an interesting story, but, you know, this little subplot here, the notion that, you know, you have an M-class planet, which is, means it's like the Earth, so it's probably, you know, eight 9,000 miles in diameter, and that there would be a magma channel all the way to the core of that planet, and that you could build a vessel that would survive traveling down that thing, which would take weeks and weeks and weeks, if not longer, and that the captain would decide this is going to be his holiday, and he's going to go down into this thing and do that, I said, you know, I, I think that strains credulity. And I, and I think that maybe there's a better thing for Picard to do on his little holidays than this B story. And I'll be happy to talk to you about alternatives, you know, <laughs> and, and they felt the same way. I mean, it was just kind of a thing that was in there and they, they realized, I think pretty, pretty much after they did it, they're just like, you know, maybe we should come up with something better here. Um, there were other things that were just sort of, you know, Part of the story that you try to rationalize as best you can. You know, Brandon loves horror stories. He loves to have the. He loved turning the Enterprise into a haunted house and, uh, you know, terrible things happened. We had an episode where the crew started to devolve into earlier ancestors of our spe- various species. Mm-hmm. So, Commander Riker. Uh, turned into an Australopithecine, I think, for some period of time, and and there was a there was a nugget of scientific, you know, knowledge in this in this in this idea, which was that there are segments of our DNA that are called introns, and back and back back way back then. Again, this is 25 years ago, so things have changed in the in the intervening time here, but. You know, there was a time when people thought that these introns, which a lot of people called junk DNA, might have been actually segments of DNA that, that were part of our ancestral past, that remained in our genome, but were no longer active, and that maybe a virus or some other kind of pathogen could activate these, these segments of DNA and, and make us devolve into our early earlier ancestors. So, you know, we evolved from primates that were similar to the Australopithecine and going further back, you know, we were related to amphibious beings and so on and so forth. Um, The notion that that information is stored in such a way that it could actually be manifested physically and and would change your body, you know. Um, to accommodate these, the, the expression of these different genes, uh, you know, was, was pretty far beyond what anybody would call scientifically credible. And the other par- part of that problem is, you know, if you turn Riker in a, into an austral, australopithecine or something like it, he has one quarter of the brain capacity of a human being, mm-hmm. and then you get him back to being, cap, you know, Commander Riker, well, how does he remember, you know, all the stuff that he knew when he was Commander Riker? If right. you shrunk his brain to a quarter of its size, <laughs> you know, he'd be a blithering idiot. You know, if you were able to bring him back, right? Um, But at least we had that idea of introns to sort of point the audience in the direction of something interesting and scientifically credible about <laughs> DNA and human evolution. Uh, It, it was something that you know. I never had any kind of veto power over, you know, stories on Star Trek. That was not my job as the science consultant. It was not my place to tell them that this story doesn't make any sense. I just had to try to make it work as best as I could. And, and I did, you know. Uh, on the Orville, as a writer and producer on the show, I, I'm in the room when the stories are being developed, and I can state my opinions in the room and say, hey, you know, I think that we're kind of going down a direction here that is more fantasy than science fiction. Do we really want to do this? And, and they'll listen nice. to me.
0: Nice.
3: Um, you know, so, you know, that's the difference between where I was 25 years ago when I started working on Star Trek and, and where I am today.
2: So do any of the other science consultants on other shows uh, give you a hard time? Like, the, do the guys from Big Bang Theory or The Expanse call you and say, how could you let them <laughs> do that in the Orville?
3: Uh, I don't know those guys, but yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, you know. They love to bust my chops, you know. I mean I, I, I talk to people <laughs> like Kevin Grazier and but you know and, and Seth Shostak and, and other you,
2: people. You, what you guys don't all go bowling together?
3: <laughs> we occasionally get together and drink. We don't we don't bowl. <laughs> um, but you know, they they, they you know, they, they have the same experiences that I do, you know. There are things that they do that are great and they love it, you know, and Kevin worked on Battlestar Galactica and he loved that show and it was a great show and and he got to do some great stuff and help them with, you know, technical aspects that, you know, that really made a big difference. in I think uh, the quality of that show, you know, and there were a couple of things like, oh, you know, when the Galactica gets into the, you know, starts tumbling into the atmosphere of a planet. I forget the specifics of, you know, an episode that Kevin was telling me about that they did. But, you know, it's like. God, you know, I, did, I i don't know if this is physically possible, but, but man, I want to see this. You know, I want to see Galactic hit that atmosphere, and you know, and uh, you know, and 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 do X, Y, and Z. So, um, yeah, you know, it's it's um, you know, it's part of what we try to do. And and you know, the other thing I try to remember, of course, is we we know a lot. Obviously, we we have an extraordinary culture and technology, and and it's amazing what we've discovered about the universe. You know, prior to when we were when you know when all of us were born and but then gosh in the last 30 years you know since I've been out of college so many things that we discovered that we never expected you know and man, when I was when I started on the science consultant job on Star Trek in 1993 the age of the universe was uncertain in the sense that we we thought it was somewhere between like 12 and 20 billion years but we didn't have a good number that we could say no it's closer to this that happened in the last 20 years and that number is now 13.8 billion years. And I remember when we had, a, we had an episode of Voyager where Catherine Janeway um, makes an offhand reference to the age of the universe. And um, I didn't know what the consensus number was at the time. This was, again, like 1996 or 7. And uh, I, I, I called my friend Laura Danley, who is an astronomer and who's the curator, curator at the Griffith Observatory, and I said, hey, you know, we got the Star Trek episode. Yeah, and I know the universe is between 10 and 20 billion years old or whatever. What, 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 what would astronomers say is the consensus number? You know, what, what would people say is most likely true today? And she said, eh, it's probably around 14, billion, 14 or 15 billion years. And then she said, but you know what? You ought to put into the script, make it 48 billion years just to tweak all the astronomers <laughs> in the audience. And I thought, Well, that's really funny, you know, but it's like, I couldn't do that. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't. That would have been a breach of faith with, you know, what they hired me to do. But she made a good point, which is that, you know what? Um, Things that that we think we know for sure today are things that will be shown to be completely false tomorrow. Not a lot of things necessarily, but the age of the universe? Yeah, I think it's pretty darn certain that it's about 13.8 billion years. You never know what we're going to discover when they launch the James Webb Space Telescope or when that big radio edition China turns on, you know, and starts looking at the universe, um, we might be wrong. And I think it's important to, to sort of recognize that when we do science fiction and to say, Hey, you know, let's throw a, let's throw something out there that suggests, you know, that maybe things we think are pretty certain today. Not true. We didn't know, you know, I mean, that happens. That's part of life.
2: Do you feel a, a sort of, an obligation or sort of responsibility to, I mean, stick to the science as well as you can, not just because you're, you know, you are a scientist and that's your, your thing, but just as a way that, I mean, some of these people may take this as an, as their education. Right. I know there are a lot of people that learn or think that they learned, uh, stuff from Star Trek.
3: Right.
2: Um, so you're like, well, this would, you know, we could do this, for mm-hmm. the plot but you know we don't want to we don't want any more flat earthers yes. on the planet oh
3: absolutely absolutely and you know and and if you know i always think in terms of you know what do we understand today what what do we um you know what are the established facts of you know of science as we understand it today you know we certainly know a lot about you know different kinds of planets Uh, you know, how far a planet needs to be from its, its, uh, home star to have liquid water on its surface, DNA molecules, evolution, you know, there are all sorts of things that we have a really, really strong grasp on. And I think will stand the test of time. And when it comes to those kinds of elements in stories, I'm, I'm very, very insistent that we, that we stick to the truth of what we know today. Um, other stuff that's more speculative I think that there's a lot more room to maneuver. And if we do a story that involves more speculative science, I'm more than happy to say let's indulge a little dramatic license, but let's do it in a way that hopefully the audience understands that it is speculative. Um, But ultimately, you know, I think that the onus is not on us. The onus is on on our society. You know, we live in a more or less free country, you know, a democratic society. We have an education system that, you know, for all its faults, is a pretty damn good education system. Uh, you know, the onus for teaching kids about science, uh, you know, is, is in the education system. Uh, and I think that, you know, in a, in a, in a good education system, you know, any, any teacher worth his or her salt is going to tell a kid to, you know, yeah, you watch a science fiction show, some of that might be based on reality and some of it might not be. And you need to learn more about, you know, what we know today to be able to make that judgment. And that's a good reason to study science. And, and obviously we live in a world where a lot of problems are uh, either caused by you know, technology or could be solved by technology. And, and people need to be scientifically literate. And I, and I don't think that it's our job on a fictional TV show to make people scientifically literate. I do think it's our job in part to inspire people to learn about science. And that's what I hope we do, whether we are speculating or sticking to really, you know, established physics, I hope we inspire people to want to learn more about it and to, you know, to learn what's real and what we know today, you know, about the, about the different, you know, kinds of issues that are, con- you know, confronting us in, this, in the world today with respect to the environment or, you know, uh, what we're trying to do in, with the space program, uh, with health issues and all of that stuff, you know, we, we, we live in a, you know, in a science fiction world. Uh, it's amazing to me, you know, um, having grown up in the sixties and seventies that I have a, you know, a fucking telephone in my pocket. That's more powerful than the computers that were, you know, guiding men to the moon in the 1960s and seventies. Who'd have thunk, you know? I mean, that's astonishing. And so, you know, we all have a responsibility to try to make ourselves more literate when it, when it comes to science and technology and the positives and the negatives of having these things at our disposal.
2: Yeah, if only to get a job as a science consultant on a show like The Orville.
3: Oh, absolutely, which is like the uh, best job in the world.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, we could go on all night, and I think we're running out of time. Do you guys, Joe, Michael, do you have any more quick questions for Andre before we uh, let him go with the promise that we're going to have him back on to grill him
1: more in the oh, future? Oh, sure, I'd love to. Just a quick question about um, about the Orville's navigation systems, and yes. when it went out, and Lamar is using star charts. <laughs>
3: yeah. sadly that you know that stuff got left on the cutting room floor. Uh, Brandon and I wanted we, we wanted Jay Lee to have actual star charts. We I, I first talked about you know I've got some really beautiful star charts um, that are, I think, at a ninth or tenth magnitude. You know, hundreds of thousands of stars. They're these big you know um you know two foot by three foot foot you know charts that open up and fold you know to show you a couple of constellations worth of stars i I really wanted to have him have something like that on the bridge and start you know flipping through pages you know do you remember the thomas guides yeah you guys are in la (laughs) uh you you could when i moved to la one of the first things that i got as a gift was a thomas guide because like you're not going to find your way anywhere without a thomas guide and of course, I depended on the Thomas Guide until GPS, you know, came along. And I wanted to do something like that. And then uh, I don't know, if it was Brandon or Seth or whoever decided that was probably a little too retro, you know. As funny as that might be, but then we thought, oh, we'll do a holographic star chart. We'll 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 have a star chart, but we'll have it as a hologram projected on the bridge that Jay Lee can st- stand next to and kind of use his hand to flip around and spin and whatever else. It ended up just getting cut because, uh, you know, you only got 43 minutes to tell your story and scripts generally are a little on the long side and you got to decide, well, what do we cut? And, you know, the whole the whole business with John with uh, with uh, John Lamar and the star charts ended up uh, getting cut out of the script. So unfortunately, we never got to see that
2: Uh, bonus Blu-ray material.
3: I hope so. That would be cool. All
2: right, Michael, you got anything?
3: Um, I, there was an interesting
0: question about the Kalons, and I don't know if this is you, this might be stuff that's like coming down the pike that you don't want to talk about but um, how developed are they as a species
3: yeah yeah and you know Mark Jackson is great he's such a great character and it's, it's too bad that we never get to see his face but he's such an expressive actor really great guy really smart actor um, we, we've intentionally kept you know Kalon Mysterious and what is their world like? What what does it look like? They are all artificial intelligences, you know. They are synthetic beings, artificial life forms. Um, we have some ideas about what that homeworld might look like and what their relationship is to biological species, which they obviously kind of look down on. And uh, I would say, without trying to reveal anything, uh, mm-hmm. that you know maybe we, we might explore that uh, that idea of what their uh, what their culture is like in, uh, in future episodes.
1: There was.
2: All right. Well, we want to thank Andre for coming on. This was so informative. Um, and I didn't, I didn't gloss over once. You were actually <laughs> cool. more entertaining than Mrs. Statum in my freshman year. <laughs> <laughs> and
3: What's she, so and she
2: managed to explain to me what 2001 meant. So,
3: uh, that's pretty cool.
2: Um, but no, thank you very much for being on the show with us, uh, giving us some insight into the, into the science and to the, um, speculative side of the Orville. And we do want to have you on again, um, after the season or beginning of season two, because we want to grill you with more questions.
3: Great. Well, it was my pleasure. This was a lot of fun.
2: All right. Well, super. Thank you very much.
3: Cool. All right, guys. Take care. Take care.
2: All right. So I hope you guys were taking notes. There is going to be
1: a quiz on all of this. Yeah. Y- You ever get the feeling that you're not the smartest person in the room? (laughs) I mean, generally with the two of you most of the time. Yeah. I, I'm
2: not quite, I'm not the the sharpest one of the pinheads in our group. Uh, Um, but yeah, that was, he was awesome. That was a lot of great stuff there. A lot of stuff to, uh, to digest. And I think, a lot of good stuff that even, uh, some of the, um, some of the doubters out there are going to have to swallow. Like what, what are you, what are you thinking? Um, just, I, I'm thinking, you know, cause again, as fans of this type of show, there are those naysayers. Uh, I don't know somebody who might complain about sound in space, <laughs> um, That science doesn't always work, but I, I think Andre's, um, explanations and his examples served well on how science can work with the
3: drama.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I think the big takeaway is that, uh, you know, you have to balance those two things. Um, you, you gotta make it look cool and be cool and feel cool and tell a cool story. But you know, as, as close as you can get to, like he kept kind of saying, credibility—you know—the better off it is. But uh, story is always going to trump the science.
2: Yeah, and um, we will have Andre on again because uh, we we just scratched the surface on the questions we got from listeners from the, our, our Reddit um, request that we sent out to you guys. And I know at, at the end of the season uh, when we sit back and uh, take a look at all the episodes and how they all work together. We're going to have more questions. So uh, we will have Andre back on again, and we will uh, grill him more on um, the science of the Orville. Um, what else we got, Joe?
1: As usual, follow us on Twitter at planetary underscore union, at Orville Observer, and at Ensign M. Henson. And on Facebook, Planetary Union Network. And we will see you next week for episode 11. And happy Thanksgiving, you donkey hugging arborists.
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least this holiday special is better than the Star Wars holiday special.
1: <laughs> Before the Star, Star Wars much. holiday special. He's be Arthur, though. Who doesn't?
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Talk to you later. All right, good day.